This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm Stephanie Butnick, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Fight on. And picketer-in-chief, Joshua Molina. Someday I'm going to have an achievement worthy of a steady, regular introduction. But hi-ho. We'll get there. We'll get there. Today on the show, we want to bring you a little bit of good news, a little bit of brightness. So we headed down to the Miami Sun for our latest installment of Across the USA. Our series checking out Jewish life across the country, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. We're also bringing you a taste of a really interesting conference that Liel and I got the chance to moderate. It was the Jewish Priorities Conference, and it was convened by the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia. Imagine that someone asked all of the most interesting and thoughtful people in Jewish life right now what our Jewish priorities should be. They each wrote an essay for a brand new book called Jewish Priorities, and they are totally across the board on what we should be doing, thinking about, and prioritizing. No, Jews disagreed on what we should be prioritizing on? It's essay after essay. It's really, really fun and really smart, and we got them all together in a room and basically let them have at it. People were not afraid to say what they thought, and it really turned out to be an amazing encapsulation of some of the most important conversations we're having in the Jewish world today. We're going to bring you the first schmear of that conversation. I'm afraid to ask, but how's everyone doing? The same. <laughs> Last week, the answer was bad. Yeah, no better, certainly. <laughs> See, my my bright moment is like w- when we ask these questions of, of our dear friend Joshua Molina, he, he says, oh, not any better. But he says it with such a big smile. <laughs> it really makes me feel really better. I'm an international man of mystery. I give mixed messages. <laughs> you keep us guessing. A, sh- a shorter term for this is Jew. <laughs> right. Could be better. I was just talking to someone who said, you know, these weeks have been dark, but a bright moment is always when I turn on unorthodox. I know I'm going to, you know, have a little bit of a break. And so I thought, oh, we better not depress people this week. We were super depressed last week. Sounds like a big responsibility. Uh, yes, I'm trying to keep things upbeat and not letting my own internal devastation seep into the studio. So, yeah, so I want to keep things. Let's keep things bright. Let's keep things motivated. So I, 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 have, I have a bright note. Uh, okay. and, and this is it. Hey, look, I'm, I'm reaching here, but we need something. So for the last five years, I've uh, expressed a bunch of opinions that have made many around me, including near and dear ones, shall we say, question my judgment and, and often my, my sanity. But none of my opinions have been more controversial than the one expressed in a column in this year, Tablet Magazine, in which I said, Jews should no longer go to college because colleges have become basically, you know, Nazi-making factories. Uh, and... <laughs> Even when people agreed with my prognosis, there seemed to be a moment in our conversation in which they would say, but we have to go to college. There's no other way. There's no other path for a Jew. We have Jewish parents. Be, yeah. What, what else? It's what expected else, of us. What, what, what else are we worth? Who are we? If not for Harvard, then who? If not in Princeton, then where? <laughs> if not in four years. If not now or Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, uh, the conversation grew more and more jagged. But this week really has been kind of a magical week. We had pro-Hamas demonstrators lock Jewish students in the library at the Cooper Union while the school's president <laughs> fled the scene, refusing to call the police. By the way, a librarian said that they were welcome to hide in the attic. <laughs> It's like a little on the it's nose, like, lady. Wow. It's cosplay. Uh, right. It's it's total Anne Frank cosplay. Um, you know, there's a, a, a Heschel alum uh, who got his nose bloodied in Tulane. There's, there's a whole lot of terrible things. Cornell, of which uh, university my parents and my daughter are graduates. Oh, it was oh, horrible. Right. Horrible, horrible, explicit anti-Semitic threats and uh, invective posted to some sort of forum. And, and the FBI is involved. These are dark, scary times. But go back to your upbeat, Leo. <laughs> you know, these these are all dark things. Uh, but as always in, in Jewish history, never without a silver lining, because there's this incredible hunter professor who's an artist. Her name is Tommy Bento. <laughs> By the way, I heard hunter professor like hunter-gatherer. <laughs> a hunter-gatherer But she goes professor. to, she's a professor at Hunter College. <laughs> Sadly, she is not yet a professor of hunting, which is what we need a lot more of in this community right now. Uh, but no, she's she's a she's a professor, uh, and she made this really really funny video. Uh, let's let's play a bit of it. Um, hello, I'd like to start by acknowledging that I just had a cappuccino on the land of the Lenape people, and so we can begin. Um, I'd like to utter support for your freedom fight 
I will be waiting for you at the university campus when you invade and finally win your exhilarating battle of freedom. I'm still on the fence about um, the massacre of the babies. On the one hand, they were colonizing babies. Um, they were Zionist babies. And, and on the other hand, oh, can I say event? Is that an offensive word? After the next massacre, if you could please find it in your hearts to have a vegan meal. You are aware, I'm sure, of the slaughter of innocent animals. So she released this video, which, you know, was mildly amusing. And on cue, a bunch of pro-Hamas student groups at the college release the following statement. They said, the video purports to be mocking performative liberals, but actually plays on a string of crass anti-Indigenous, anti-Palestinian, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim stereotypes. Emphatically, da-da-da-da-da. They called the video a hate crime and a racist attack that, this is my favorite, exacerbates our vulnerability. By the way, as, as a result of some of these things, we are now seeing letters from a whole host of day schools across the country that are basically saying to college recruiters, we refuse to let you into our schools Amazing. as long as you don't have real commitments, which, which is such an incredible bit of news to me. Because like, here's what we need to remember. What we really need and value and want and love and believe in is not a college degree. It's education. There are other ways to do it. I know it's a big stretch, but like imagine a world in which you say, okay, look, I'm going to take the quarter of a million dollars or whatever it is that you drop in college. Maybe Joshua cares to share the exact oh, number. God. Although he probably is still crying over the number. It's but like, a lot. Imagine you took that money and said, okay, look, I want my kid to do four things with it. I want a quarter of the time and the money to be spent on traveling the world so that the kid actually sees what other cultures and other people think and, and are like. I want a quarter of it to go to picking up an actual profession so that this kid could actually do something useful and, and make a living and, you know, make the world a better place. I want a quarter of it to go to community service, which is something that is not at all emphasized in our current, you know, rat race. Is the last quarter uh, index funds? <laughs> the last quarter is fucking around. Oh, that's the best quarter. Right? Spend some time just trying to figure out who the fuck you are. And not just being like, oh my God, I got to get this into Chip and McKinsey. Like, we're so much better than this. Like, it seems devastating, but it is such an amazing moment to imagine new institutions, new ways of educating kids. My favorite, again, again, I can't say this enough, like in Haredi communities, they have these things called kolels in which they pay only the top like 15% of the actual brilliant students, not people like myself, who then stick around. They don't go somewhere fancy, some coastal town and become, you know, part of that group, they stay in their communities. And anyone who wants a class, you know, imagine you're the dentist or the accountant at 7 p.m. You just want like a little history lesson or a little literature lesson. These kids stay behind and then teach the community that supported them. We're going to see amazing things happen here. As long as we could do away with like, oh, it's so important that my kid goes to a Princeton. Princeton's dead. There's no more Columbia. There's no more Harvard. Forget about this. First of all, I'm very scared whenever I agree with Liel. And the, the frequency with which this is happening, I feel like I need a support group. There's a support group for those of us who are like, hmm, he does sound pretty reasonable. But I'm keeping the, the gun talk until next week or next month. Here's the thing. Like, let's show them what happens when we leave their institutions. Like, I feel like what we're seeing right now is everyone being so upfront about how much they hate Jews, right? And how little... Jews matter, right? And how much they're going to bend over backwards to accommodate everyone. And then all of a sudden, Jews just have no place on that hierarchy. And so I think what actually will be funny is like, okay, let's actually stop sending our kids to these schools. Let's see what happens to them, right? What does Robin Williams say about uh, why no one's funny in Germany? It's Mr. Williams, why do you think there's not so much comedy in Germany? And I said, did you ever think you killed all the funny people? <laughs> Having shown us how little your institution cares for and protects its Jewish students, let's see what happens to it without Jews. And but, I think that that is going to show people. It's a long game. Is that the appropriate response, though, to feeling increasingly unwelcome and even unsafe to empty these spaces of Jews? I, or do we have to stay and somehow demand that you know, uh, we are treated as others are? I, I would love to go with option B. Honestly, I have yet to this day, and if you can reverse this, I will be immensely grateful. 
So I wrote this piece and literally seven university presidents call Orion and say, you're completely wrong. This is, you know, ridiculous. And this piece was like 2018, I believe. Like this is long ago. And I called every single one back and I said, this is amazing. I want to be wrong so desperately. I, I spent a third of my life in these institutions and love and revere them and want nothing more. Like I taught at Columbia. I taught at NYU. I have a PhD. I want nothing more than to go back to these institutions. If we could save them, show me the way, show me the path. How do you do it? And, and every single one, basically after a, an hour long conversation said, yeah, no, there's no, there's, there's, there's no way to solve these problems, obviously. And my favorite was one university president who should remain nameless at some point, just looked at me point blank. This is over dinner and said, you realize I'm only a university president. I don't have any real power, right? Mm. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're correct. You're absolutely right. But Joshua Molina will find a way because I believe in him. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying this sarcastically. Although honestly, Joshua, why would you like? If your kids drop out of college, like you could still save yourself some money. Yes. Uh, no, I, I would be solvent today uh, had yeah. my children decided not to go to college. Go for it. But I do think it puts this just kind of insane onus on these kids who are kids, right? 18, 19, 20. And all of a sudden, you know, as a publication based in New York, we used to get a lot of interns from Columbia and Barnard. And I remember even like 10 years ago thinking, wow, how much these kids have to know about Israel? just to exist on these campuses. Like it was just very different from where I went and how I existed in college. But it did seem increasingly that kids at certain schools were going to just have to like have their facts ready about why Israel isn't an apartheid state. It was just sort of part of the discourse in a way that I feel lucky to have avoided. I don't know if it's because where I went or when I went there. And now it seems like every Jewish kid everywhere if you want to get chicken soup, if you're homesick and you want to go to the, the Hillel for dinner, you're going to like need to have your facts about Israel. Yeah, and you're maybe in, in real danger. <laughs> for a freaking matzo ball soup. And it's like, actually, I don't think those kids are going to go to the Hillel, right? Because I think I would be too scared. And so suddenly we're just asking these kids to do all of this work. It's scary and it's depressing and it's they should be like out drinking. And it's it's the dumbest story. Like, imagine like, son, before you go to college, there are some things that you need to know. <laughs> you mean like how to load a bong, dad? No, son. The 1949 armistice lines of the United Nations were like, oh, my Lord, this is so not fun. And just like to be accused of genocide. I don't know. I just think what we've seen in the past week on social media from all of these schools, it's just disgusting. And you're just like, these places are where we're educating the next generation of leaders. And like, this is what what they're doing. And I don't know. I just feel kind of sickened by it. So I tell my kids three times a week. You're not going to college. And can I be that guy? Because I feel it is Please. part of my job Definitely. to be that guy. I was not, <laughs> and not to create any false equivalents, but I was equally sickened to see extremist Jewish mob outside of Netanya College chanting death to Arabs when uh, Israeli Arabs were oh. in their dormitory, you know, seeking shelter. A hundred, a thousand percent. Of course, this is a single example, whereas I can give many, many on the In other another side. country. No, but but you're right. I want to acknowledge not, it. We're better than that. Correct. But hold on. But hold on. It's it's a single example, but, but, but I do believe that it's a single indicative example of a problem that Israel will have to address ASAP because, because you see a lot of this. There are also a lot of questions now of what Israel's Arab population, how it will fare after the war. I have to say. Sure. That while it sickens me, it gives me amazing hope to see A, that it's a very isolated, insulated example. B, that an unbelievable, overwhelming majority, the last numbers I've seen, something like 87% of Israeli Arabs stand a billion percent with their Jewish brothers and sisters and, and are horrified and, and, you know, against this. And also really kind of incredible sort of mobilization in the Israeli Arab community, there are like now a couple of villages that just went into like full on cooking mode, creating tens of thousands of meals for soldiers. Like it's very hard. This is amazing. And we better make sure that whatever government replaces this failed one understands that and prioritizes that. You're here. Agreed. I think the thousands of people cooking brings us perfectly to our first News of the Jews story. <laughs> we should thank them for providing us that segue. News. Of the Jews, oh yeah. N O T J News of the Jews. Liel, this was an article originally in Hebrew, translated to English. I do not trust the translation, so please tell us about the single ladies. So basically, look, Israelis are unbelievable. The entire country is mobilized in the most 
amazing, heartwarming, inspiring, beautiful way. But sometimes, really, a specific story <laughs> breaks through and really manages to amaze even more than the, the usual amazement. This one, which appeared in the Israeli website Ynet a while back, has the following headline. We called ourselves War Tinder, and we wrote down the phone numbers of single ladies on the meals we cooked for soldiers. <laughs> so this is a new initiative of, of women who are cooking meals for soldiers and, and reservists uh, who are going to fight this war. And on the lids of the Tupperware containers, they write the phone numbers of their <laughs> girlfriends who are single and in need of a date. Now, Here's the thing. This this is incredible because it's like a like a Tinder profile, right? And some of the profiles are amazing. Like one says, "Odlo of our hope is not yet lost," which is of course a line from Hatikva, the national anthem of Israel. And it says, "Nor is my mother's hope lost yet." <laughs> Wait, my favorite says, "I didn't cook it, but let me know if it tastes good." Right. <laughs> but text me if it tastes good. And she said, "Like I'd rather I'd rather you be tall, but it's okay if you're not." God bless that woman. <laughs> My absolute favorite is, uh, you remember the story we told a couple of weeks back of uh, Rachel from Ufakim, the, the woman with the cookies who stalled Hamas until she could be saved, who later, when Joe Biden visited Israel, he met this, this amazing, courageous woman. He's like, I got to try these cookies. So one, one of the notes here says, if Biden could come all the way to Rachel from Ufakim, wouldn't you just come over to me? <laughs> Just incredible. This story to me has everything because it's like clever, witty, and warm. Not only are you trying to feed the soldiers, you're trying to inject some life into it. You're trying, like, it's, to me, it's just the spirit of this country that, you know, is inextinguishable. And I I don't know. I love it. So much better than a dating app. Yes, exactly. It's a dating app with food. It's a dating snack. So beautifully analog. Which, by the way, I'm sorry, but like, there's kind of a business in there for unorthodox. How about you could just buy snacks? And we could have like single friends write down messages on the lid. No, and... they should deliver them. Right. It's, it's like it's like Jewish. a Shabbos meal yeah. that someone single oh, brings to you. It. But listen, there's uh, there's what you eat. But more importantly, for the morale of the fighting men, there's how you look. Joshua Molina, do you want, our senior oh, yeah. style correspondent, do you want to take us straight to the hirsute world of Israel's fighting men? Yes, yes. Apparently, it is either in tribute, I think, to the look of IDF soldiers in uh, the 73 Yom Kippur War or just a general morale-building endeavor. But uh, IDF soldiers have begun to or have stopped shaving and are growing mustaches. Full-on 70s porn mustaches, which I also am growing in support of the idea. <laughs> okay, there are so many videos going around Instagram with these guys, and they're like, they're all just like posing and doing like- Full Tom Selleck, Burt Reynolds mode. These these videos are affecting. <laughs> I watch yeah. them, I'm like, what is going on? I really like this. <laughs> I think uh, smoking cigarettes also seems <laughs> to be part of the look. Oh my God. Yeah, yes. they're like, oh, this is, it's, it's sultry, it's smoky. Um, Very sultry. I love it. I love it. Man, the, 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 the soundtrack for this war. <laughs> He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his mother. Talking about Shlomo. <laughs> <laughs> Walking around with like long trench coats. What's going to happen when, well, I guess we'll find out by the time this episode comes out, when Movember hits. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh, we started November early. It's because of the, the Hebrew date for Movember. Actually, yes, exactly. Erev Movember begins <laughs> in October. <laughs> but look, to my mind, nothing beats the following thing that I saw. On Instagram. So, you know, as is customary in armies all over the world, sometimes the fighting men write messages on the bombs they're about to deliver onto their enemies. And one in particular that I saw posted yesterday really warmed my heart. It says simply on this bomb about to be dropped on Hamas in Gaza, it reads in Hebrew, this one is for Chandler Bing. <laughs> oh, uh, Rest in peace, Matthew Perry. Allah shalom, yes. I knew him a little, by the way. Incredibly great, funny, as you would guess, sweet guy. Such a tragedy. So what's been happening around, at least New York City, I know other, other cities, sadly, as well, is people are putting up those kidnap posters for the hundreds of people who were kidnapped by Hamas, and people are ripping them down. It's, it's just, it's horrible. But what people are starting to do is identify the people who are ripping them down. They'll go up to them, they'll take a video, they'll post it, they'll see if someone knows who it is. Um, think what you will of the practice. One of these guys was captured on the Upper West Side, and he was very quickly identified as like a Broadway producer. 
people were like, hey, I know that guy. And it's this guy, James Simon, who apparently co-produced the 2022 Broadway revival of Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. Um, that Jew he had no problem with, Arthur Miller. <laughs> he gets told off by a different Broadway producer, Adam Epstein who said, you're going to a dark and devious place if you've come to a place where you're ripping posters off the wall of Israeli hostages of innocent people held captive by terrorists. This is the most like intra Upper West Side squabble. And I feel like we're going to get a Broadway production about this very soon. Literally everyone who lives in our neighborhood, Stephanie, is a Broadway producer. There's a smattering of Broadway actors, but the majority are Broadway producers. It's just really crazy because he's doing it right outside of Reds. Um, and I'm like, you think you're not going to get spotted? I believe his response to being busted for it was that he just was trying to keep the neighborhood clean. Yeah, he like doesn't like flyers. I'm sure he was taking down all sorts of flyers. Not only was that his response, so he was walking around. He did not tear them down. He was walking around the neighborhood with a pair of scissors and very fastidiously sort of cut them down so as not to harm the whatever lampposts they were posted on. And when confronted, he said, I support freedom of speech, but I support more the ordinances and regulations of the New York Department of Sanitation. <laughs> oh my God. I was to say, buddy, I think you have problems that go well beyond this conflict, man. <laughs> so all I'm asking is you do it legally. That's literally what he said, citing the sanitation department rules. <laughs> I do have to say, so I first saw this on an account I follow, which is I Love the Upper West Side. And it's just like local news, you know, openings, closings. They've now pivoted to identifying people who are tearing these posters down. It's so funny. And people are getting really mad this that they're doing it. This guy's punishment yeah. should be 60 hours of mandatory watching Arthur Miller plays. <laughs> My absolute least favorite. The Philip Roth of American playwrights. The absolute worst. Like, oh, such you don't a, like Philip Roth? I, oh, oh, dear. That's sorry oh, for another time. I despise Philip Roth. Yeah, no, no, no. I think he's an immoral creep. Oh, that may be. I just like his books. Yeah. Could you imagine being so disturbed by, like, the idea of, like, litter or, like, things on other That's what I'm saying. Spaces Can you imagine this guy's inner life? That you literally take down a kidnap poster. It's like a kid on the poster. And you're like... You need to sort this out. But so are we saying we're buying the story that he's just trying to clean up the neighborhood? I mean, it, I took it as weak cover story for some sort of uh, anti-Semitic underpinning. He had the sanitation rules at the ready. The troubling thing? Yeah, because he was so quick with the precise like ordinance, like 723.6. I actually think there may that's- There something to it. I think he's right. I think he's honest. He's president of his co-op board and everyone in his building will probably attest to that. <laughs> Again, this is literally like season five of Only Murders in the Building. Like, that's the one where the fastidious Broadway Only producer flyers gets off. <laughs> in the garbage. We are excited to announce Tablet's first ever essay competition, First Personal. Our editors are looking for previously unpublished work by writers living in North America who have never written for Tablet before. They are seeking submissions on the theme of belonging. Where do you feel at home or no longer at home, physically, spiritually, or culturally? How do you find community or a sense that you're a part of something larger than yourself? Are there places where you feel a sense of belonging or alienation or both? Tablet is seeking personal essays about your life and your experiences and how your thoughts and feelings have evolved over time. Tablet editors will review all submissions and choose their favorite five, which they will edit with the writers. The authors of those five pieces will be brought to New York City to read their story in front of a live audience. A guest judge will then select the winner. The winning essay will be published in Tablet and the winner will receive $500. For more information and to submit your essay, please visit tabletmag.com slash essay contest. J. Crew, when our friends Adam Bello and David Chazoni came to us and said that they were planning an anthology called Jewish Priorities, in which they asked 65 people to come up with 65 proposals for the future of the Jews. What should we be focusing on? Well, I'll be honest, we thought it was a little bit of an ambitious project, maybe too ambitious, and there's no way that we could not only cram this into a book, but to a one-day conference. It seemed crazy. But last month, Stephanie Butnick and myself hopped down to the Weizmann Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia for a day that was truly incredible because we had conversations that were substantive, uh, that were loaded, that were sometimes very, very searing and cutting, but also respectful and also hopeful. And so we will bring you all of these panels. You could listen to them in the very near future. But for now, 
we want to give you a little taste of the conversations we had, especially the conversation that we had about Israel and how we should move forward from the tragedy of October 7th. Have a listen. When we agreed to take part in the Jewish Priorities Project, it seemed nice. 65 prominent Jewish thinkers, 65 answers to one thought-provoking question. What should Jews care about most right now? We were looking forward to this book coming out and looking forward to a day of discussion. Maybe a little disagreement. Okay, more than a little disagreement. We're Jews. But still, all in good spirit, one giant entertaining thought experiment. And then came October 7th, and suddenly the question no longer seemed theoretical. It seemed real. It seemed urgent. We Jews were just dealt one of the deadliest blows in our history. How should we respond? Should we double down on peacemaking efforts or prepare for a long, maybe even never-ending war? Should we turn our backs on allies who are eerily silent in the aftermath of the attack or try harder to build better coalitions? These questions were always meaningful, but now they seemed pressing, like our very survival depended on getting them right. So Stephanie and I headed down to the Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia for an entire day of very difficult and absolutely essential conversations. Is there a better place in the museum? It tells a really sweeping story from 1654, when the first permanent Jewish communities formed in the New World, to the present day, really taking you on this journey through American Jewish history. So we felt we were just in the right place. But what kind of conversations were we going to have? Were we going to be polite to each other? Were we going to be rude and just yell? Or try to look for some other path, some other way to talk about really painful things and have disagreements without losing the love and respect we felt for each other. I'll let my friend and teacher, Rabbi David Wolpe, explain it. Here he is on the very first panel Stephanie and I moderated. We know from history that a common enemy creates unity. We saw it after 9-11. If tomorrow aliens came, all of Earth would be united. But after the aliens left, Russia and the Ukraine still wouldn't like each other. So I don't want us to over-exaggerate the unity that comes about from this. Instead, the unity is believing that your opponent is a person with good intentions who sees the world differently than you do and trying to understand and empathize, not agree or necessarily even coexist in the same small area. For example, when I go back to Harvard, I have already let students know if they want to come to my office, whatever side they represent and talk to me, I want to listen to them. Because I think it is a much better thing with a 20-year-old who carries a Palestinian flag to engage them in conversation than it is to say, you're out of bounds. That's it. I'm never talking to you. I have nothing to say to you. I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to reason with you. I don't know about you, but I really would not want to be held to account for everything I said when I was 20 years old. And it is infinitely more effective in creating goodwill than get the hell out of my synagogue. Rabbi Shlomo Elkin, the co-director with his wife Dvorah of the Chabad at Oberlin, had a more, shall we say, embodied way of saying more or less the same beautiful thing. I think back to one of the foundational texts of, of Chabad philosophy, and it talks about all, all the Jewish people being like various limbs of the body, right? So, of course, the mind cares about what, what's happening with the left toe, but also at times they're in tension with each other. The left toe has its own function, as does the mind and the heart and, and every other limb. So we have to be indelibly concerned with every part of the body, every part of the Jewish people. So in that sense, there's no distinction, right? And I think that's where the motivation that Rabbi Wolpe mentioned of sitting, I mean, if I, only, if I only had people that thought like me around my Shabbos table, well, my wife wouldn't be there for sure. <laughs> um. I'm surprised at how surprised I was because I know better and I shouldn't have been. That's Halel Silverman. She's an Israeli activist who is passionate about progressive Zionist causes. And she was talking to Stephanie about what it was like to be a liberal Jew 
in the wake of October 7 and find out that, well, that the folks you thought were your friends maybe sort of weren't. And I'm still shocked every video I see of of women tearing down the the kidnapped photos. And that there was one outside my hotel last night when I checked when I checked in and I just started sobbing. It was on the ground, ripped off. And I we shouldn't be surprised anymore, but we are because we are forgiving and we are loving people and we do expect the best of people. I am so angry and I try so hard to not let that come through because it would hurt my discussions with people online. I think whether you know them or not, it's always nice to drop into someone's DM before bashing them because a lot of the time they don't mean to be inaccurate or incorrect or to hurt you with that butt at the end. I, I think it's good for us to, to try to rise above and DM someone when they're wrong before just jumping into that comment section for everyone to see. I think there's a level of respect that will be appreciated there. And all of our tensions are so high, we can't think clearly. But that won't help us. So yeah, things got a little tense. Emotions ran a bit high. We needed someone to refocus us, to recalibrate the conversation and bring us back to the bigger and maybe more cheerful picture. We needed Dara Horn. So I actually don't think that this is a story of doom. And the reason for that is sort of my experience when I speak with Jewish readers is all these people coming up to me and telling me I never told anyone this before, but and then telling me their horror story. And right. And then sometimes being like, can you help? Which, you know, I, I yeah, I'm like about as effective as the Lorax in this. Right. Um, so this is extremely depressing to me. The thing that has made me think differently about this is the responses I have gotten from non-Jewish readers. And so I actually am in those kinds of spaces. I have done like DEI for Google's worldwide employees. I speak for general audiences where in places where there's like, you know, no Jews. But what I can't get over is there's a whole lot of people with a whole lot of goodwill who really, really want to be in today's parlance good allies and have no idea how and don't know anything. There is so much more ignorance than malice and that is an opportunity. You know, there's like, I forget how many states, it's like 28 states or something in this country that require Holocaust education in schools. I want to be really clear, it should be 50. I'm not arguing against Holocaust education. But there's not a single state in this country where people are required to learn who Jews are. Everybody needs to know the, a story about Jews in a mass grave. But that's the only thing they know about Jews to the extent that when I was at the Dallas Holocaust Museum last summer for a teacher conference, the docents there told me the kids who come through this museum, you know what they ask? They say, are there still Jews alive today? Because if you went to this museum, you wouldn't know. Why are we not telling people who Jews are? Why are we letting the internet do that for us? You know, when you speak to people who are progressives, you say, you know, we want to tell the story of American Jews as part of, as you said, this diversity, you know, this mosaic of American identities. And then we found progressive Congress people were like, yay, sign me up. And then you talk to conservative Congress people and you, whose offices you walk into and they've got, you know, Jesus saves on the wall. And you say, we want to tell this story about American Jews and how we're part of this story of religious liberty in America. And they're like, yay, sign me up. And both of those things are true. This is a story that is resonant for everyone and people really just don't know it. And that's like, to me, is an opportunity to change this conversation and going to what David said and to, and to what Ali said about that we are a people, that has been what's missing. This protective strategy that I do not blame a prior generation for taking where we've sold ourselves as a religion during the Cold War and that was the way to sell it, that unfortunately has led to this decoupling of, the, of Jews from the, the state of Israel. And the reality is we are an Am. We are Am Yisrael. That is who we are. And when you lead with that, then suddenly it is part of what you're learning in school is that Jews are indigenous people to the land of Israel. And that is something that is in your high school textbook and something that you need to learn in school. And that is simply a fact. We had a strategy in the past to avoid that. That strategy is no longer working. It is time for a new strategy. So I think that there's sort of this larger strategy in combating anti-Semitism, part of which you see in Holocaust education, which is selling you people on this idea that, oh, see this group of people here who you might be bigoted against. You shouldn't hate those people because they're just like you and me. They're just like everyone else. And the problem with this is, you know, Jews spent 3,000 years not being like everyone else, right? Uncoolness is Judaism's brand. 
And, you know, this goes back thousands of years to the ancient Near East. Everybody's worshiping their Marvel Cinematic Universe of sexy deities. And we're like the losers in the school cafeteria with our bossy, unsexy, invisible God. Like, we've never been cool. This is like a fatal flaw in the idea of of living in a pluralistic society. Because if you're telling people you shouldn't hate people because they're just like you and me, they're just like everyone else. What you're basically saying is that means if they're not just like you and me, it's totally cool to hate them. And then you're like, wait, why are Hasidim being beat up on the street all the time? Right? It's like, well, they have weird hairstyles. They're not like me and you. You know, therefore, it's like totally fine to hate them because they're not just like everybody else. That is a fatal flaw in this idea. And the same in that idea of peoplehood, which we've been talking about. What it means to be Am Yisrael, like, you know, every non-Jewish society has tried to fit Jews into the identity boxes that they know best. It's always so funny to me. And whenever I speak in these conversations in the States, it's always like, how do Jews fit into a conversation about race? That's what identity is all based on race. All you need to do is go to Canada. And suddenly they're like, identity is all about language. Let's talk about language. I'm like, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. Here it's all about language. They're always trying to put us into whatever box that that society knows best. But the problem is Jews predate the box. The idea of what an am is, is this is, you know, it's a type of social group that was really common in the ancient Near East and it happens to just not be common in the West today. The reason it's not common in the West today is because we have these, you know, universalizing religions that have been eradicating these groups for thousands of years. And that's why we don't fit into the box. So I think that, yes, it is time to change this strategy. And I think it is time to wean hard into the content of Jewish civilization because that also has something that can benefit everyone. Okay, so by now it was like 2 p.m. And we've been going on for hours. We talked about how Jews think about death and about how Jews tell stories and about how Jews approach just about everything you can imagine. You will hear these conversations soon. We're putting them out in a bit as a limited-run series together with our friends at the Weizmann Museum. But it was now time to have the one conversation we've really been both anticipating and, if I'm being honest, dreading a little bit. The conversation about Israel. Why were we dreading it? Well, I'll answer this question by introducing you to the panel. We had Blake Flayden, the young and fiery and Zionist and liberal writer and activist who had just moved to Israel. We had Yishai Fleischer, the spokesman of the Jewish community of Hebron. We had Sally Abrams, the director of Judaism and Israel Education at the Jewish Community Relations Council of Minnesota and the Dakotas. We had Dalia Scheindlin, an Israeli political scientist who has worked on several electoral campaigns. And we had Brett Stevens, editor of Sapir magazine and a columnist for, you know, another publication as well. I kicked things off by asking Blake to get real about his feelings. We've had conversations in which you shared that side by side with, you know, the the heartbreak that you're feeling, with the hurt, uh, with the fear, with the rage. You're also feeling a considerable amount of anger to other people in Israel who are not in, shall we say, your political camp, who you believe set political agendas that put Israel at risk. That's a big statement. Please elaborate. Yes, absolutely. Um, So I'd love to say, excuse me, that I was surprised by the events on on October 7th. But the truth is that I wasn't surprised because anybody who has been paying attention to the political program of not only this government that we currently have in Israel, but the broader uh, religious right in Israel knows that this moment was coming for a while. There have been warnings even before the last election happened that this particular ideology of state expansionism, of chipping away at the secular liberal democratic foundations of the state, will lead to a catastrophe for the Jewish people and will lead to, if not addressed and confronted, the fall of the Third Temple or the fall of the state of Israel. We knew it was going to come to this. And to provide more detail as to how we knew it was going to come to this, the night of October 6th, so before the atrocious events happened the next morning, 70% of our soldiers, 70% of our soldiers are in the occupied territories. They were not at the Gaza Strip that morning, and there is a reason why they were not at the Gaza Strip that morning. We actually have evidence that says a uh, squadron of soldiers was taken from the Gaza Strip in order to supervise Sukkot and holiday celebrations in the territories at that time. Of the 70% of the soldiers who are any given day in the occupied territories, 80% of them are not guarding sovereign Israel. 80% of them are guarding people who live outside of the sovereign borders of the state of Israel. Now this is political suicide. 
I mean, what other country on the map has the bulk of its security forces not defending what it has to offer as land, not defending its own sovereign soil? That's preposterous. And I'm really hoping, and by the way, these conversations are already happening in Hebrew. There's been very little movement in English because I, I personally don't think American Jews are really quite ready to have this sort of deliberation. But look, there was a massive political shift after 1973 because of the failure of the government, because of the failure of the military to not see that surprise attack. And in fact, it wasn't really even a surprise attack. This was a surprise attack. And so if there was a political shift after 1973, I really hope that we are going to see, uh, encouraged by the protest movement, the very valuable an important protest movement that we've seen take place across the country, people showing up in the hundreds of thousands. I hope that this protest movement moves the country to the left, moves the country to ask these difficult questions so that we're more secure in the future. Now, thank you, Blake. Now, Ishai, I'm, I'm seated on the far right on this panel. Usually this would be my job to, to answer uh, things such as what Blake just said. Uh, today, the pleasure falls to you. <clears throat> well, uh, for me, first thing I just want to say, it was, it was tough to come here today uh, because people like myself, uh, I was just wearing my M16 a few days ago defending the places in Judea and Samaria, including our home in Efrat, uh, in our community. We have a community of Hebron. It is the oldest Jewish community in the world, the oldest, over 3,000 years old. Uh, it is there that the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs of our peoplehood is. It is today, because of left-wing policies, a small Jewish community surrounded by 200,000 Arabs controlled by the PA, but who are mostly Hamas Arabs. Uh, the only reason that Hebron has not become Gaza yet is because there's a Jewish community there. If there would not be a Jewish community, there would not be an army. If there would not be an army there, then the place would become a place full of rockets and, and jihadism. Truth of the matter is, is that jihadism has metastasized in our land. It has metastasized in southern Lebanon, in Gaza, where we walked away. And I was there in 2005 when the country evacuated the Jews of Gaza and the Arabs were begging us through the fence saying, don't leave. You don't understand what's coming. And American Jews and other Jews uh, on the left said to me, you'll see, we'll pull out of Gaza, but if they shoot one rocket, we're going to flatten them. And of course, they have shot now tens of thousands of rockets and have armed themselves. Uh, we have jihadism in the Israeli-Arab cities, like Umm al-Fakhim. We have them in mixed Arab cities like Yafo, Akko, Ramle, Lud. Uh, in 2021, Arabs burnt 10 synagogues. This year, uh, in not just in Judea and Samaria, but in places like Tel Aviv, 35 Jews were murdered. Why? Because we have allowed them to run amok. We've allowed jihadism to take root in our land. Uh, we've allowed it on our borders. We haven't smashed the readiness of rockets against us. Uh, and it's policies that have weakened us, walking away from land, uh, that have empowered the jihad. That's how the Arabs think. And there's some people here that speak Westernism, and some people speak Middle Easternism. Some people understand what it means to succumb to these people and give them what they want, which is to see a shrinking Israel. And of course, in the places that we shrink, they arm themselves. There are 400,000 illegal weapons just in the Israeli Arab cities, and those guns will turn against us. It's time, I believe, for a revolution, a tshuva movement, not just of returning to God, but of returning to common sense. If you see jihadism, you have to stop it. At the end of this war, there should be no mosques teaching jihadism. There should be no schools, even in Jerusalem, teaching jihadism. No newspapers and, and television stations teaching the hate of the Jewish people, the kind that showed its ugly head uh, just uh, two weeks ago. Brett, um, I wonder what it is that you see when, when you look at a country that barely jumped out of, of a very, very thorny, perhaps the most thorny period uh, in its history, this period of, of civil unrest uh, and right into one of the most existential crises in its history. Uh, I see a country that has to find its center. My political experience of Israel really started during the Oslo years when half the country thought it had a bright and important and necessary idea and tried to shove it down the throat of the other half of the country. And it nearly shipwrecked Israel, and it led to that great catastrophe called the Second Intifada when I was the editor of the Jerusalem Post, and I saw Jews being murdered in the street on a, a daily or at least a weekly basis. In 2023, 
half the country tried to shove its idea of, or its what it thought was a great idea, down the throat of the other half of the country, and it nearly shipwrecked the country again and helped contribute to the disaster of, of October 7th. There is a lesson in that. Politics in Israel cannot be turned into a zero-sum game. Israel is not just a country and a state. It's a family, and in a family, you have to learn to compromise. That's That should be uh, an essential prerequisite for all statesmanship in the country. It's like having a marital dispute. You know, you think you have a great idea. Maybe it is a great idea, but if your spouse says, over my dead body, that should be the end of that idea, period. And so this was my fundamental opposition to judicial reform. Leaving the particulars aside, when you have so much of the country and such an important part of the country so vehemently opposed to it, that, that should end. I, I just listened to this, to this conversation here, and I feel like somewhere between the two of you, you also have to find where the center is if Israel is going to thrive. Because the idea, to me, of Israel now withdrawing from the West Bank so it, we can have a replica of Gaza on a larger scale seems completely insane. The prospect of a Palestinian state now exists somewhere 100 years into the future because the problem with a Palestinian state isn't the question of the territory. The, the, the problem, as, as you rightly pointed out, is the content of the state the content of its character. If it's devoted to jihad, that strikes me as, as a recipe for national suicide to midwife that kind of state into existence. On the other hand, Zionism surely didn't come into being so that Jews could rule other people. The purpose of Zionism is so that Jews can rule ourselves safely and securely. So trying to navigate between these two positions is the essence of, of thoughtful Jewish statesmanship. And that is what I'm hoping Israel can find in a post-Likud, post-October 7th political order. We need, I don't know, I, I keep thinking of, of Saba Higea, of Noam Tibon rescuing his, his grandchild and, and the granddaughter saying, Saba, you know, grandpa's here. That is the kind of leadership that the country requires now. It needs to restore social trust so that the social capital that exists inside the state can be represented with competence and a sense of responsibility in the upper echelons of government. The conversation went on. It was intense. The disagreements were so real. So real, you had to ask yourself at times if these folks were even looking at the same reality. Here, for example, is Dalia Scheindlin. Um, I live in Tel Aviv. You know, I've been rushing to the non-bomb shelter that I don't have every time there are sirens that go off, which is four to five times a day. So we're all going through very difficult stuff together. I do speak with Arabs. You know who else I speak with? Palestinians, okay? And I'm not determining who calls themselves what, but I do speak with Palestinians. And my Palestinian friends are stricken with grief, and they have been reaching out in ways that are almost inarticulate with pain. Pain over what has been done in their name, pain over what is happening to their family and their communities in Gaza. And they themselves are tormented and having complex um, you know, difficulty expressing themselves, as am I. And I think that without taking that into account, you will, you know, you know, only ever looking at this as if it's them against us is a misreading of my reality. Did we end up agreeing on everything? No, not by a long shot. But when the day was over and we got back in the car and drove back home to New York, we felt hopeful because we had managed a conversation, a bunch of them really, that didn't seek to reach a consensus. Instead, we did that thing that we Jews have been doing so well since at least the times of the Talmud. We were having a machloket l'shem shamaim, an argument for the sake of heaven. Passionate and oh so real, but much more interested in the questions than the answers. The Weizmann National Museum of American Jewish History teaches the powerful and true stories of Jewish life in America as an antidote to anti-Semitism. From 1654, when the first permanent Jewish communities formed in the New World, to the present day, visitors of all backgrounds can engage with a varied and vibrant history of American Jews. Through exhibitions, programs, and events, and nationally recognized curricula, all available as in-person and virtual experiences, you can take a journey through American history like never before. From wherever you are in the country, 
explore U.S. history, society, and culture through the lens of an immigrant group and religious minority examining how Jews have shaped and been shaped by our evolving nation. Find all of this and more, including a fully digitized virtual walkthrough of the core exhibition at theweitzman.org. This episode's Across the USA segment was produced with support from the Jewish Federations of North America. The Jewish Federations of North America are the backbone of the organized Jewish community in the U.S. and Canada, representing over 350 Jewish communities. They raise and distribute more than $1 billion annually, including through planned giving and endowment programs to build flourishing Jewish communities domestically in Israel and around the world. For more information, visit jewishfederations.org. Hold on to your hats, folks. It's time for another installment of our Country Crossing series, Across the USA, created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. Earlier this year, I packed my bags for warmer climes and headed to Miami in search of the newer communities that are redefining Jewish life in Florida. So join me on a trip down to Miami to see our people. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But there's a man of Sheffers down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for lots in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA My name is Fred Klein I'm the rabbi at the Greater Miami Jewish Federation And I'm the chaplain of the community Well, we're sitting in a Starbucks in Aventura And you can hear some of the traffic in the background. It's sort of like the gathering place for the Aventura Jewish community. Whenever I walk here, you're always going to see somebody. It's really the place to be. Half of our Federation business is done in places like this, or there's a bagel place down the road, Bagel Cove or Moe's Bagels. Those are the places where a lot of the business is done in our community. So it's really nice. And you and I were just talking. Look at the, the wonderful weather here. That's what's bringing people down to South Florida. So, yeah, the weather is great down here. But it's not only the 78-degree perfection that makes people pack up and move down to the Sunshine State. Let's start from the beginning. There was a Jewish community down here in Miami since at least 1763. But for the most part, it was small, and it struggled. A couple of hurricanes and one very Great Depression all left their mark on the community. So did anti-Semitism. Jewish doctors couldn't get staff privileges at local hospitals, so they started their own hospital, Mount Sinai, in Miami Beach. But then the ship came in, literally. When Ted Arison, an Israeli entrepreneur, helped create the modern cruise industry, Miami became a great big hub for tourism. Then came air conditioning and better ways to keep mosquitoes at bay, and air travel becoming much more common. And all of a sudden, Miami was a happening place. By some estimates, in the early 1950s, a new home was built in Miami every seven minutes. And many of these homes were populated by Jews, about 650 of whom moved here each month. This boom lasted for a while, and then it stopped. For about four decades, the Jewish population in Miami stopped growing. In fact, it shrank because many of the people who moved down here were getting older and sadly passing away and not enough people were lining up to replace them. As other major cities saw their Jewish populations expanding, Miami didn't. What happened then to make this community start growing so robustly? Instead of telling you, I'll show you. Hi, my name is Talia Lansawiki. I'm 16 years old and I'm from Argentina. Hi, I'm Sofia Wengroski. I'm from Monterrey, Mexico, and I'm 18 years old. I'm Edith Koenig, I'm 16, and I'm from Venezuela. Hi, I'm Jaco Andrao, I'm 16, and I'm also from Venezuela. Lea Mejar, I'm 31, and I'm from Panama. These amazing teens are all involved in La Casa, a program run by Lea Bejar, that last voice you heard, who created La Casa when she was director of Latin NCSY for the Southern Region. The group meets monthly on Thursday nights when they gather at someone's home for dinner and discussion with speakers and special presentations that Lea curates. Some of these kids go to public school. Some go to Jewish day school. Some go to private school. 
Between sessions, they communicate via a lively WhatsApp group. Here's Leah again, the group's founder. We're all in the Jewish community, but at the same time, like, not everybody's families is as, like, religious and, like, they don't go to shul. Yeah, we go to Jewish school, but, like, I think it's a really cool concept that you could just get, like, a bunch of friends from, like, Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia, like, Argentina, and, like, you all, like, connect in your Judaism and, like, learn about it. Like, you're from different places, but, like, you connect with, like, your religion. And that right there is how we can start figuring out the magic that is Miami's Jewish community. in the last four decades or so, Jews came to Miami from Panama and Venezuela and Mexico and Argentina. Jews who spoke Spanish and had a different level of observance and who needed a place to be Jewish together. And Miami, a city with an already thriving Latino community, was there to welcome them to their new home. The first time I met Leah, in like five minutes, I already knew like five people from two different, completely different countries. Like me, I don't go to Jewish school, but by La Casa, I feel like I'm, be, I'm able to connect with other Jewish people, like through our Latin identity, but also through the Jewish identity. Basically how it works is Leah shows us a video at the beginning. Then we like divide into little groups with like separate advisors and we speak about like the topic of the week. We have a little bit of like the Torah learning. All the grades combined. I'm able to hang out with like the freshmen and I'm a senior. Everyone's like together. Everyone's just laughing and like super happy and like having a time. Gives you like a more open like mind and you start like thinking about different things. That's what makes it different and what makes it more fun. Some of these kids talked about how they'll even transport this La Casa experience with them when they head to college. But for now, we're still here in Miami, a place that took in these kids' families, allowed them to make it their home, and allowed someone like Leah to see what they needed and make it happen for them. It feels like part of the magic of Miami. It's from teens, for teens. It's a vitamin for the soul. It's a supplement. They've all been exposed to Jewish education. It's part of the Latin community. Even if you don't go to a Jewish school, you have your Latin mom like lighting candles, more likely. And vitamins, they enhance your life. So this is La Casa enhances your Judaism and your teenage years, which can be so annoying and rocky. It's incredible to see like all the kids like wanting to go to like a Jewish event. Cause, like usually when you like connect something to like the religion. We've been forced a lot of times to like do stuff in school, like to pray or stuff like that. That feels like it's something like robotic, that like we don't want to do it anymore. It's crazy to see these kids wanting to go every week. We all leave like with a lesson or something learned that we can apply to our daily life with a little bit of Torah. Latin Jews help Miami's Jewish community grow exponentially. By 2014, the local federation proudly published a report that declared the Jewish population in Miami was growing for the first time in 40 years. And 33% of that community consisted of foreign-born Jews, a far higher ratio than any other community in America. Not all the new Miami Jews came from Latin America. Some came from a place that also has palm trees and good weather and a lot of diverse Jews. Israel. Like Avigail Eichenblatt, for example. She was born in South Africa. And when she was six months old, her parents made Aliyah. She grew up in Israel and lived there until shortly after getting married, when she and her husband moved first to Los Angeles and then to the Miami area. She started teaching pottery here and has found it to be a natural way to connect with the local Jewish community. I think there's a lot of people that would love this. And would, if they just knew, and if they just have the exposure and someone facilitating and giving this, offering this, they would come. And that's what I'm, I'm being getting. Like, this is the feedback. Like, people are just in awe and they want this. They need this. This is like, this, it's something so unique. It's so different. And in like communities that are I don't know, maybe in Orthodox communities, like there's not so much of this. It's also really cool to think that like there was no studio, but now you've created it. And now when, to me, it seems like more people just keep coming down. And so now like there is this, in a way, this infrastructure being built that I imagine is very exciting to people when they come because they don't need to start their own things necessarily, or maybe they will. Maybe it's like fertile ground here in a way because it hasn't been so overdeveloped in terms of the stuff we've come to expect in other cities sort of more offbeat spiritual stuff. Yeah. 
A lot of new Miami transplants are religious Jews who find the slower pace of life here to be refreshing and inspiring. I am Mookie Bess, and we are in my home in Surfside. And I am a somatic movement instructor, a yoga instructor, and I give Thai yoga body work here. I teach on the beach, I teach privately, and I'm a mom and a wife. I had heard about a yoga class on Friday mornings on the beach in Surfside, a town halfway between Aventura and Miami with a large observant population. You might have heard of Surfside from the tragic building collapse in June 2021, in which 98 people died. The tragedy deeply affected the Jewish community, and people are still healing. Nearly everyone I spoke with brought up the collapse in our conversations. I heard this yoga class drew a group of Jewish women, and so I got in touch with Muki, the woman who teaches it. If you've never heard of somatic movement, don't worry. Neither had I before stepping into Mookie's home and lying down on a yoga mat. But first, I wanted to know more about Mookie's impression of Surfside. She moved here from Crown Heights in Brooklyn five years ago. Okay, so Surfside uh, Community Center, which is three blocks up, there's a water park, there's two massive Olympic-sized pools, um, there's kosher food. So we pretty much go every Sunday. And then we'll end up at the beach. It just feels very wholesome, and it, it's it's beautiful, this community. Like, I absolutely love it. There's nowhere else I want to be. It, there's just a lot of opportunities to come together as a community, which is really beautiful. The difference between Mookie's native New York and her adopted community is a meaningful one. So I think that in New York, it was a sense of constant hustle, and I didn't have that space to really just be. And then here, I, I got here, and... I was like, I didn't have that hustle life. And then that's when I felt like I was able to really start my healing process of like, just, okay, I don't need to be doing anything to be, I don't need to be going anywhere. I don't need to, I was able to like hear my own voice in, in my head, which was re really wild. I was telling someone the other day, I was like, I don't really leave Surfside. The community is here. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, I have the avenue and I'm able to walk or I could walk to the beach, drive to my kids to school, which is a 10-minute drive. Um, and it, this community is just so, there's just, it's, it's all, I feel like it's all here. Surfside is where Mookie slowed down and where she helps other people in her community do the same. She's become well-known for guiding people in the practice of somatics, a bodywork and movement practice that promotes whole body healing. What's so incredible is that it's just gentle movements. It's not like yoga where you, you know, you have to have all that strength to do it or like flexibility. This increases your flexibility and mobility. It's cool. In my process that I do, um, I, I mean, I get on my mat and I use gravity and I, I do slow, gentle movements to give it that space and healing presence that it needs. Her clientele, the local community of women many of them Jewish. I would teach men, but right now it's women who are drawn to it. For the most part, for the people who I work with, I end up becoming friends with them and it's really special. Lately, it's been opening up to like outside. Like yesterday I had uh, someone from an MB who was not normally part of my circle. Like I think she was more like Hasidish. So that was cool. I was like, oh, it's getting out there. I was excited. Even though we weren't at the beach where most people come from Mookie's guided practice, I had to try it for myself. I wasn't entirely sure what to expect, but in the spirit of journalism, this cynical New Yorker lay down on a mat and our sound engineer got into place next to me. So a few things before we start is I want you to have this attitude of exploration, discovery, really just tuning in and noticing anything that might be coming up for you laying here in this neutral spine, feeling the support of the earth. And bring your awareness to the space that feels the most grounded and supported in your body. Is it in your hips, your head, your feet? And notice the first thing that comes up for you when you feel into the space. And then start noticing the spaces that are just merely just grazing the earth, like your little back, behind your knees, behind your neck. And then bring your awareness to the spaces that aren't touching the earth, like the front of your body. It was absolutely wild. I felt this intense relaxation, this release, this totally overwhelming sensation. 
And lying on that floor in Surfside with this spiritual teacher, I had to ask Muki if she thought there was a relationship between this practice and Jewish practice. Um, when we work with the body, when we get really present with the body, we could recognize that life, that the spiritual path is a, it's a journey and not a destination. And the more we heal ourselves, heal our body, heal our trauma, let all that go, there's ability to have more connections. And I think that spirituality and Judaism doesn't have to be this always in the books, the Torah and everything. It could also be connecting to the divinity and the divine within us with each person. You know, everybody has something to offer and something to give. So when we tune into that, you could ask yourself what it is that I, you know, what's, what do I want to offer? What do I want to do? And that ability to offer a very diverse group of people a lot of very diverse ways to be Jewish is something locals say Miami does better than most American cities. Rabbi Klein agrees. Uh, I think our community has done a great job of listening to other voices. You know, diversity, equity, inclusion is really important on our Jewish Federation agenda. It's became, it's become like other communities, a very important idea. Because I think our Jewish community wants to recognize all the different expressions of Judaism. We have a very strong Israeli community here. We have a very strong Sephardic community. You know, many communities are very much dominated by Ashkenazi Jews. So how are those voices also being raised up in our community? And of course, we have an LGBT community here. We have synagogues that run programs for those communities specifically. We have a Jewish disabilities network for families that are dealing with children with disabilities. How do they feel their, their sense of place in our community? I think all of that speaks to the fact that we are trying, and we're only sometimes successful, but we try to make sure that a person who says, I want to be Jewish, finds a place here. So I'm happy to hear what you said, that uh, people feel a sense of belonging here when they come and they've only been here for three years. Because I don't think that's always a story that many people feel. I certainly felt it with every conversation I had in Miami and with every person I met. From the Starbucks to the somatic movement and the pottery making, I couldn't be more giddy to see Jews, young and old, speaking Spanish and Hebrew and English and Yiddish, getting together and doing Jewish in a million different ways. You couldn't conceive of a more promising recipe for a growing, robust Jewish community. All right, time for some Mazel Tubs. Our first Mazel Tub goes out to Michael Waller. That's producer Quinn Waller's dad and his new wife, Tracy. They got married earlier this month, and we are so excited for them. Mazel. Uh, amazing. Mazel Tov. Michael Waller is also a former guest on Take One and an awesome dude. So happy for him and for Tracy. It, it, look, it's going to be very hard to top the Simcha, but this just in. Breaking news. The best news we could hope for, because earlier today, we record this on Monday, the IDF, in an unbelievably daring operation, rescued 19-year-old Israeli soldier, Ori Megidish. She is one of those soldiers who served as a lookout. She was among the first to be taken captive by Hamas. And she's home. She's safe. She's with her family. She's okay. Honestly, this is the best news ever. And we just have, you know, one down, 239 more to go. That is such great news and such a way to end this episode. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Daron Ruskay, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. Across the USA is created with the support of the Jewish Federations of North America. Thanks to Rabbi Fred Klein, Leah Bechar, Ricky Klein, Avigail Eichenblatt, Mookie Betts, and everyone who welcomed us so warmly in Miami. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We love to hear from you. Send us emails at unorthodoxatabamag.com or leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.